Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company and his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 52. It's time for our second quarterly Q&A session, and we get tons of questions from the audience and specifically from our patrons. And each quarter, we pick a few of our favorite questions that we've answered in our after show and rehash them here for everyone to hear. Uh, But before we get into it, we do want to thank our patrons. We had some new patrons that joined the MFP tribe. That was Square City Pieces, John Hobbs, Riley Conway at Conworks Design, Fox Brothers Wood, and Dan Dopker from Double D Woodworking. Thank you so much, guys. If you would like to join the Patreon's crew, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. And just as a little teaser, in today's after show, we are going to be talking about Our first thoughts on IGTV, hot topic out there on Instagram uh, coming off of our episode 50 about the algorithm. And that is the after show is where we actually discuss a lot of these hot topics right off the cut and what we're seeing. And then we will talk about them in the show after we've gotten some more information. So if you're interested in doing that, go on, check out the patron squad. John, what's been going on this week, brother? Uh, just slamming out some content, dude. I busted out two videos last week. I wrapped up two projects and um, it's it's nice. I, I'm doing a project for myself for the house um, and, oh. I, and I just did my literal first project probably ever for me um, with, uh, <laughs> with a concrete and metal coffee table that will actually have just dropped when this um, when this show airs. But yeah, man, it feels good to not be under the pressure of a client build with deadlines and, you know, all the worries and stuff that goes into it. Um, kind of hitting a rhythm there. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's been some pretty good stuff, pretty good stuff. So what do you got going on? Yeah. That's like my life. I don't build for anybody yeah. except for me. <laughs> yes. And then, and then, yes. What, what you'll, what you'll see as you delve more into the content world, it's now going to be like, uh, you know, con- uh, sponsored deadlines and, those people, even though it's for yourself, you're like, I still got to get this out. Uh, but yeah, dude, I'm, I'm stoked to see that table. I know that uh, you had the the fail on the regular concrete and you went to the GFRC, right? So that's going to be cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that mm-hmm. finished up. Uh, yeah, so I've been working on some uh, smart home content, actually. I, I did the thing last year and I'm doing it again this year uh, with Home Depot uh, a little sponsored thing with them. And uh, I've been checking out some of those hue lights from from Philips and I'm going to be installing those in different spots around the house. And, uh, it's got the, you know, where you can actually adjust the color temperature, which is pretty cool. So a little bit, um, off topic for the woodworking piece for a bit, get into the DIY home stuff. Uh, and that's just going to be a blog. And then I'm going to come back with my next video is going to be on the drill press stand. So, uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be cool. And of course our cornhole and redneck golf, I mean, you know, just the best videos to come out this year. Yes, yes. Probably award Not from a view perspective, but, you know, whatever. Quality, <laughs> quality, yeah. Award right, award winning, you know, I'm, I'm assuming we'll be at the YouTube Awards at the end of the year for such high production value and such yeah. entertaining content. Yeah, yeah. It's, and my, Best my, use of a two by 10. And yeah. thumbnail. Thumbnail yeah. definitely <laughs> has got has got some opportunity to win some 
<laughs> win some awards there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, one of my uh, things that I've started to really enjoy and starting to grow on me is these Q&A sessions. I think it's cool that, that and we talked about doing this and we get so many good questions from our patrons. We want to share some with the larger audience. So uh, these are things we've actually already answered, but you know, now that some time has gone by and uh, it'll be interesting to see if we have the same answers, of course, as always. Uh, but if, if our opinion has changed based upon the last time. But John, why don't you kick us off with the first one there? Let's jump into this thing. So Chad Howe asks, how wide is too wide when thinking about expanding the business capabilities? He already does CNC and laser work and has thought about jumping into other things um, like supplementating the rest of his business. Um, and he was curious about getting crazy wide or niching down and what our thoughts were on expanding without going outside of the realm of your original business idea. Um, you know, the reason we revisited this question after it was asked in the, the after show, I believe was because both of us have been entertaining the idea of expansion, whether that is, you know, laser 3d printing CNC, um, for myself, concrete work, um, you know, more fabrication style metal work. Um, but when it comes down to something that is not just producing content, you do have to consider um, the time value of investing in not just new tools, one, but the new skills, two, and the time taken away from other things happening. So um, in my opinion, you know, and, and I actually can't even remember how I answered it in the after show. That's, that's, <laughs> but, but I'm sure that was a while ago. It's okay. It's um, okay. But I'm, I'm sure along the same lines, in, in my opinion, I think, um, expanding within the realm of what you're doing is great. If it supplements your existing workflow, that being you have existing processes that are already efficient, they're fast, um, and they work well, they're almost monotonous and second nature to you. If your processes are that well set up, I believe supplementing with new tools or capabilities can be something that is a, a big value add, um, like a CNC. So if you're, you know, batching out, say, uh, we'll go with something simple like cutting boards, for instance, and you make them all spec to size, spec to thickness, and you create a CNC program to route, um, your like, juice grooves, for instance, or logos or something in the center, that can be a great addition to an existing workflow, as long as it's not a hindrance on what's happening. The other aspect of that is going to have to be the um, investment of the tool itself. Is it something that is going to force you into debt? Is it something that's going right. to force you into a situation where you're unable to get out of the red? You know, is it is it such a large investment that you have to be selling only products made on that machine in order to pay it off? Um, so like. What's what I think is really cool here, and we'll stick with the CNC stuff, is that there are some pretty affordable and quality machines out there now coming from a lot of the uh, a lot of the brands you'll see in the maker community, um, and you can get a lot done on those, um, and you can make some really really good money. I mean, uh, our our patrons Evan and Caitlin, um, or our friends too, they do a great job of using machines to supplement their business model when it comes to three D printing, when it comes to CNC work. Um, and they always incorporate it in a nifty way into their existing workflow to develop new products. Um, so, you know, tangentially in the same concept to go into 3D printing while you're doing woodworking in, say, you're sticking with the cutting boards and that's what you make your money on. That's going to be something that is 
way more outside of what you're already doing, that it's going to be a completely new workflow. It's going to be a completely new sales model. It's going to be completely new cost model. Um, and it's going to be something that, in my opinion, would become a hindrance. I recently got a 3D printer and I'm learning the, you know, the software to it. I'm learning the tricks and ins and outs of the machine itself. Um, and, and for me, it's taken a while for someone that needs to be putting out work consistently and that doesn't want to spend 18 hour days at work. Um, <laughs> you know, you might not have the time to learn that new machine and it could become a detriment to your existing winning strategy. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing and I remember going through this question is, is, uh, why are you expanding? Right. Because you're hitting on some good points, John, of, of what it's going to do to your business. So expansion is never easy. Right. It means either new tools, new processes, new learning and more than likely all of the above. Uh, but the the idea is so kind of two things, expanding business capabilities. Uh, what Chad asks about is it's one thing to expand your product line uh, and that, you know, expansion is a good thing. Right. So he asked about, you know, expanding versus niching down. Uh, you always hear, you know, hear some of the cliches, the the riches are in the niches. Right. So, you know, go deep, not wide. Uh, Gary V talks a lot about that, but at the same time, it, it, you know, when you are a product maker, that doesn't mean that all you make is cutting boards. That means that you know, be deep in your skill set and be, be deep in your knowledge of your customer base. But if your customer wants a dining table and all you've made is cutting boards, like you just don't say, I mean, not necessarily, right? You're, well, hey, go find somebody that makes dining tables because all I do is cutting boards. Like, you know, I think that's where a lot of people start expanding business capabilities. So uh, business capabilities could be also just the products that you make. So going from small to larger stuff, because like you said, John, so it's going to take some different tooling to go in to start making tables if you've always made cutting boards, right? You, you're going to need some bigger clamps. Uh, you know, it might be good to get a joinery method because, you know, you might not have a bisque machine or a doweler or a domino or whatever you're going to use to make the tables. Uh, if you're just making cutting boards, you know, you're just slapping the wood together, right? You, you're not using any alignment methods most likely. Uh, so those are things, again, to think about uh, why are you going there? If a customer's asking for it, if there's a need, that's where you move. So there's two ways, like there's two things uh, in my mind when I think about expanding business, either I see a need and I want to fill it. I see a, because somebody's asking or I see an unfilled need that, uh, you know, I've heard people ask about or whatever. You're either getting a direct request to go do this thing and you're going to do it. Or you see like, oh, I think there's an opportunity here that I've heard people talk about it. Nobody's directly asked me to make them a, a three-tiered dining table yet, but I see this gap in the market and nobody's making a three-tiered dining table and I'm going to do it because that sounds amazing. I mean, just skip the two-tiered dining table. I'm going straight to the three-tiered dining table. <laughs> and <laughs> that's that's going to be my new thing. So, you know, I think that's where you have to think about and base your decision in is uh, – what is the demand and where's the customer coming from? So, uh, and I think one of the examples we talked about in when we answered this the first time was, uh, if you look at most companies, what they are today is not what they started, right? Like Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak started making computers in their garage, right? Like that's not all that Apple does anymore. They've expanded their capabilities because they saw a need, they're innovative. Uh, so again, looking at that and and judging those things, I mean, think like in your business, John, that, you know, when you brought on the CNC, what was your thought process? Was it because somebody because you saw an opportunity or somebody asked for custom engraving? 
I saw an opportunity um, as well as being asked for custom signage more than engraving. Um, and I've always been intrigued by CNC. I think the incorporation of a CNC into the flow of a standard woodworking or furniture making um, can be a huge time saver if you're fast and efficient with it. But what I've learned is that I am not fast or efficient with it. And because of that, it has been more of a supplement instead of a workhorse in my shop. Um, you know, I, uh, for, for instance, um, there are some woodworkers that are ridiculously skilled pattern build router style woodworkers. They have lots of handmade patterns um, and they use those to build a variety of things. Well, a CNC is a great supplement for somebody who's using that type of um, type of methods to build. Why? Well, it's precise off of the machine um, and it's ready to roll. So, you know, right. if you are, you know, Jory Brigham, for instance, who builds a ton of pattern style furniture, you can then CNC produce your um, templates instead of printing them out, taping 65 sheets of computer paper together, cutting them out with a jigsaw, sanding them down to the line. You can see how that can be a great supplement. For me, it was the learning curve. And and I will say this, I use a Mac for everything. I have a Mac computer. VCarve runs on a, um, it runs on uh, PC. PC and he can't I, even say it. He can't even say it. I word. can't. He's I, like, I he almost said it up. I almost said DOS. MS DOS. <laughs> <laughs> is it, it runs off Linux. Is that what you guys call that um, PC thing? John called me uh, just as a side note. John, John or he texted me. John never calls. He always texts because he's a millennial. Uh, he texts me and he says, Hey, what I, I I need a PC, and I'm like, well, who is this? <laughs> Where's John? Who, who stole who stole John's phone and asking me about a PC? Yeah. So I mean, so with that, I can't. I have to run a parallel. It slows my computer down. It's extremely inefficient process. I'm not a fan of. Um, and that has been a big detriment for me using my um using my CNC. So you know, those are things I didn't consider when I went into the acquisition of that machine. Um, it's and it's just me taking the time to do it properly and set it up. And I have to probably pay for the you know upgraded parallel version so it functions better and blah, blah. But those are things that matter when it comes to incorporating a large scale machine like that. Plus you, yeah. plus you build. So with something like a CNC, you learn to build it into your workflow. So if you're designing and you know, oh, I have a CNC that can do this operation, you know, that's where your brain begins to go. So I think, um, you know, when you're using machines for expansion, for instance, you should try not to stay one dimensional with those machines. Make sure that it's something that can supplement across whatever you're making. Right. Um, you know, and I just gave an example of building a piece of furniture as well as a cutting board and why a CNC would be a great supplement there. Same thing with what you were touching on, Brad, joinery methods. You know, if you want to expand into doing larger scale projects and you need an eight inch joiner, that's obviously going to function well for smaller scale projects. Same with a larger planer. But if you wanted to jump into, say, Welding, you know, a TIG welder is a very slow process. You may find a great killer deal on Craigslist and think your capabilities have just flown through the roof because you can now weld all types of metal and you can do all these designs. Well, you know, no, you <laughs> you just incorporated a lot more time. That takes a ton of right. practice to get good. And you need all the machines for finishing, all the machines for cutting, all the machines for grinding. And then you can see how that can That's become right. a large burden on your business model. So when it comes to expansion, the reason, you know, people like Gary Vee and, and Brad and myself 
advocate for niching down is because when you become massively efficient in your process, that's where time now becomes a positive variable in your business model where you're able to control how much time goes into things because it's so efficient. When a lot of us fall victim to too much time going into certain things and we end up losing money. And I think the when you have any new machines, that learning curve is part of that equation and it can and it can honestly become a detriment to your, your profitability model or your pricing model, um, as we like to call it. Yeah, and I think the biggest, just wrapping it up, the biggest takeaways are uh, just know, know everything that's involved. Do your research. Don't just like, you know, that's a great example, John. Don't just see a great smoking deal on whatever, mm -hmm. the TIG welder, buy it, and then not think about the fact that you need a grinder, you need the argon tank, you need the hood, you need the the welding safety gear, you know, you need the frame, you need the clamps, the magnetics, like yep. you need so much stuff. That mm -hmm. It's not just binding a welder. It is a, a whole process. And that goes with anything. Uh, same thing if you're going to upgrade even general uh, woodworking equipment. Do you have the 220 voltage? Do you have the floor space? How does it affect the rest of your workflow? You know, just go in eyes wide open. And then the back end of that is make sure that, um, you know, for me, I would not buy a machine for one job and not have anything else. So if you're going to do that for one job and we talk about, you know, a lot of people say, make sure that that job can pay for it. Well, that's great. If you get a custom signage job and you get a CNC and it pays for the CNC, but if you got no leads on how you're going to have follow on work, might not be a great idea. So yeah. make sure that you're fleshing that out and you're going to see how that's not only going to work for the current jobs, but in the future and how it's going to work into your workflow. So I think that's a good one here. So we had the next one come from uh, Jacob Elliott and Jacob asked about Instagram. He says he's building a new shop and he's at the drywall stage most amazing stage of any project. Uh, and so he says, how do I keep my Instagram growing without reposting uh, what seems like the same type of material over and over? So he's he's in a monotonous stage. It's going to take a while, uh, you know, hanging drywall, taping, sanding, taping, sanding, 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 all that good stuff. Uh, and, you know, the content. So this could be drywall. This could apply to a lot of different things. Uh, if you're in something that's very monotonous for, you know, a week or two weeks, how do you keep fresh content? Uh, you know, the biggest thing I was talking to Jacob about in the in the after show was um, use it as an opportunity. So like for this one specifically, he's doing drywall. Uh, I think that's a great opportunity to wrap a story around it. Obviously, he's he's building a new shop like he's building a new shop that is super exciting. Like that is something that so many people dream about. And so instead of focusing on the process that he's in, uh, my recommendation was to focus on the journey, focus on the story, focus on what's going to happen after he finishes this. You know, maybe maybe he can take that opportunity to share some SketchUp drawings, some rough layouts that he's been sketching about the new shop, talking about the excitement of the new shop. So, yes, you're in a this process of of monotony of sanding and drywalling and all that and then painting uh, before you can start moving stuff in. But that's part of the story. And and as we talk about in social media, Instagram specifically, but anything, uh, you're you're trying to bring people along into your journey, into your story. And so this is an amazing part of Jacob's story that he's he's getting into a new shop and so many new things are going to happen. At the same time, take that to be a reflection. You know, use Throwback Thursday. Talk about the old shop. What are some of the the favorite things from his old shop that he really enjoyed or the things like, oh, this was I hated this about my old shop. It had seven and a half foot ceilings, 
the new shop's going to have 11 foot ceiling and have a picture of the old shop, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a spot like there's that one, that one HVAC duct that I always used to hit my head on, whatever it is, uh, you know, use it as an opportunity to really just talk about the journey and talk about more of uh, how you're interacting with it and how it's going to be part of the business and what it's going to look like going forward and, you know, reminiscing about the old stuff too. And uh, I love the aspect of the storytelling in like the, the post reflection as well as the process of what's happening in the moment. Um, you know, to complement that, I think that it's a great opportunity to, sh- to show another set of skills, to show some expertise. Um, great example is uh, April Wilkerson. April is primarily a woodworker um, on her channel. She does a bunch of other stuff, but she just did her shop build and took us through the entire process of it. And it was extremely entertaining, super educational. Um, and uh, uh, most of her audience, there wasn't even, I wouldn't even say there was a fall off. It was actually probably a buildup because it was such a massive undertaking. Um, you could use an example like that to your advantage in some situation like this. Um, you know, that being, you don't have to be an electrician, a plumber, um, or a framer or something like that, but when they're there doing the work or there's an opportunity to ask them a question, that's a great opportunity to provide some value to your audience and show a little bit of expertise, you know, talking about, um, what's coming into your junction box and why it looks this way. Or, you know, when you're, uh, going with pecs over, you know, copper or you're sweating, you know, a, a line or whatever it might be, those things, because we're woodworkers, And because we're mostly furniture makers, um, if your audience is consisting of that, we also enjoy the knowledge of knowing something that is tangential to the skill or the trade. Um, And so I think it's a great opportunity to showcase that type of stuff. Um, You know, uh, Jacob talks about drywalling specifically in the question. And I mean, there's a reason Drywall Nation has 142,000 followers on Instagram. It's because you can make drywalling really, really cool, um, you know. And there's a lot of tips and tricks and insights, and there's a lot of great things that go into drywalling that can really help most of us. Because let's be honest, we're all trying to save a buck, and all of us are probably going to be putting up drywall at some point in the near future because <laughs> we don't want to pay somebody to do it. And then immediately when we get to sanding and finishing, we're going to hate it and wish we hired somebody to do ever. it. Yes, <laughs> but in that. Um, you know, if you have any insight or knowledge of that process that you think could help your audience, I think those are great opportunities as well as I hit on this in the after show a little bit too. drywall is like a goopy kind of, you know, a blobby, uh, uh, what is the slimy substance that is like yeah. a hot trendy it's thing like, right now. It's on like s- the oddly satisfying. Right. Yeah. Like I, I could totally see that. Like yeah. you, you grab that, you, you dip it in, in the, the trowel throw the big blob on the, on your hawk. Yeah. Uh, and I've used, I've used a drywall hawk like way too many times. I had plaster walls like in, in my old rentals and I would like just constantly be doing drywall. So yeah, you slap that on there and, and thin it out. And yeah, yeah, that would like do, you know, 4 million views on Instagram. So. Pro- probably, but you can, so now when you start thinking about things that may seem mundane and monotonous, consider how you can make them cool. And even if it's just a random video of you following the, you know, seam tape with your camera and running it around the room. Like that's better than nothing. Um, and I think most of us, because we don't like the process, especially with something like drywalling can tend to just be like, nobody else is going to like this too. But I think there's a lot of great ways to show 
show it interesting, right. make it make it something cool. Um, and as well as now going back to what Brad said, reflecting on why you're doing certain things in the build of the new shop. For example, if you're making a, say, a storage cutout and you're notching around a pre-framed, you know, box in your wall or something along those lines, why are you doing it? You know, why is this here? What was it in the previous, in the past? You know, how is this going to affect your workflow in the future? Show, like Brad said, a model of what your build around is going to look like. These are cool opportunities to create content around something that is close enough to what the, your prime, excuse me, your main audience might be that I still think it can be interesting. I still think it can be really cool, educational and value adding to anybody. Yeah. And asking the questions too. So don't forget that part as well. If, uh, if it's your first go at drywalling, that's a great opportunity to be like, yo, I is my first go at it. What kind of tips do you have for me? Because you'll be surprised, you'll be surprised, surprised. You'll be surprised at, uh, your audience and who actually follows you too, especially as your audience grows in size is that you will get all kinds of people following you. And so, you know, you very well may have people that do drywall all day, every day. You know, you might have a handful of them even that are out there. And so if you ask a question about, hey, you know, I'm wondering about paper tape versus uh, the fiberglass reinforced, you know, mesh, uh, which one do you prefer, the plastic or whatever it is? And, you know, ask a question like that. And you might get like, ask a genuine question. You know, don't just ask a fluff question. But if you're wondering about that or, plastic corner bead versus metal corner bead. And those are some great opportunities that if you do have a question, if you come up on something that you're not really sure about, take it to your audience as well and ask them uh, and see what you can get out of there. And you might have some really fruitful conversations as well. Yeah, it's insane. I was I actually found myself in a conversation with Kiefer, a toolaholic, um, about plastic versus metal drywall corners. There you go. <laughs> uh, uh, last time we were together. And I mean, the amount of information that the professionals have out there and the amount of experience they have with things like this, you can uh, you can get so much information, so much knowledge just by asking a question like that. Um, I've done it before in the past and a little bit more on like the design side where I'll throw out a mock up of something and get feedback from a lot of the amazing people that are out there in social. Um, and, it, and it really, really helps. So I think that's an, a great little tip there, Brad, and a great opportunity to to use the situation to your advantage. Cool. So moving on to our next question, it comes from James Shadbolt. And this was actually a little lengthier in the after show, but to sum it up, James had a customer complain about the quality of one of his workbenches. Um, and the bench was purchased through the website and the customer used that as her reference. Um, so the question was along the lines of how to handle the situation um, and any suggestions with returns specifically. Right. And, uh, you know, in that um, this is a quite a unique situation because everything was handled online. Um, and this is international, too. And this was international, too. So uh, it's really, really tricky here. Um, so I believe thinking back on it, what happened was, uh, you know, the customer was uh, sort of felt misled by what they were sent after um, their interactions online. Um, and that's a difficult aspect of selling online when it comes to furniture making, because that individual can't tangibly, tangibly. We are making up words left and right. I let you go at the very <laughs> beginning. You said something. I, I think you said 
Sublimation. Yes. It's fantastic. Where it's, yes, I believe you're trying Dude, to hit you know sublimation what it, you know in the what show notes, but it's, yeah. So you guys will see here shortly. We had an interview <laughs> that we recorded last week with one of our favorites, and uh, they were making up words left and right, and Brad and I have just carried it on. But let us know if you catch it when that episode drops. But anyway, so um, if you can't <laughs> tangibly put your hands on something, um, when you're selling a piece of furniture, it does make it difficult when when you're shipping. Um, and I've been in that situation. I think we've talked about it on the show before. I uh, I shipped a, um, a media console across the state to New Jersey, um, and and the client you know was expecting something completely different than a you know hardwood project. And uh, because of that, we had to go through the whole return process. I ate about you know four to five thousand dollars on on the gig, um, and I just had to. Um, do my best to make sure that if I could handle anything else in that situation, I handled it. And if there was a way for me to fix it, I could fix it. So, um, so, you know, my suggestion here, uh, I believe on the after show was because the transaction has already happened, the piece has already been shipped across the country or continent or whatever it might've been. Um, you're going to want to make sure that you're doing everything you possibly can in order to make that person feel fulfilled. Um, but you want to keep it simple. You're not going to fly out there and fix the the piece. Um, you offer a simple return in this situation where you contact a local freighting company, get the cheapest rate you can. You don't care if that thing's tossed on the top of a semi and driven back to you um, for a hundred bucks. It doesn't need to be perfect coming back to you. Um, but you do what you can to make the experience for that client as you know, beneficial and easy as possible. What you're trying to avoid here is a bad review or some type of negative uh, chatter happening about your business. And, and that type of stuff can do tons of detriment to, you know, the, the brand you're trying to build compared to you just taking the hit financially and figuring out a way to repurpose the existing product and resell it down the line. Um, so, so in that, you know, uh, make sure that you're you're trying to contact them via phone calls. Um, you're doing it in a very non-pushy, um, trying to help type of way. Uh, and, and you want to make sure that if there's any language barriers or if there is any miscommunications in that, that you are as understanding as possible and that you are doing everything in your power to make sure that the client, even though they're not satisfied, is as satisfied as it can possibly be in this situation. Yeah, it's super tough. I, this is actually a great, I think we, we don't even have this on the list, but we should definitely have a, a full show on just like, you know, dealing with customers, right? And on the yeah. front end and the back end. So, uh, you know, coming from retail, uh, so I spent in my corporate gig, uh, I spent a good, oh gosh, seven, eight years in corporate retail, uh, even more than that, I think. But anyway, so dearly, so I'm very familiar with uh, customers and customer returns. And in this situation, it was more of, uh, you know, small goods, general merchandise. So you get, you know, kind of everything. But uh, what we always talk about as well is like, this is, you know, this is a customer, your business is supported by customers. And John, you hit it on the head. Um, you want that to be a good interaction. Okay, this customer is already this customer is not happy. Okay, and you have two chances to delight a customer. One, when they purchase and buy. And two, when a problem comes up. Because you can turn a bad situation into a good one, or at least a neutral one, right? And, and the way that you handle it. And so 
I believe in this specific instance, it was actually a little even more involved that there was some shipping damage. And, um, you know, so then it was it was a bit muddy, but uh, let's just keep it with the quality. So uh, the customer got the bin, it's an actual woodworking workbench, I believe, and was not happy with the quality of what she expected. And so my first question back to, to James was, um, you know, how, what does it look like? Like, what, what does your, what does your website look like? And did that match? So, and what does your website say? And this is where describing your product and giving your customer a picture of what it's going to be is super important and uh, doing it in a way that is very transparent and very accurate. So if you're only taking pictures, like if there's something you don't want to show, if you have pocket holes on the underside and you never show a picture of a pocket hole and you don't say the word pocket hole construction, uh, that's a miss because if that customer gets that and then they see pocket holes and are not expecting them, that's gonna be a big problem. And I'm not saying this is what James did. I'm just, as an example, uh, we didn't actually see the workbench here, but uh, you know, you want to, you want to be as forthright as possible. And you obviously want to take the most flattering pictures, but at the same time, you do not want to hide anything. Like if, if you're looking at it and thinking, oh, I, I don't want this angle because it shows X. Uh, if the person is not going to see that product in person before they buy it, you might want to think twice about that. I think one of the other things I suggested was, or I asked him as well, is like, hey, do you have any video walkthroughs? Like, this is a great opportunity. We've been talking about getting into video as a product seller. It's a great opportunity to get into video with a, a product fly around, right? You're, you're going, you're showing some tight shots, you're showing some wide shots, you're showing the benefits and usage of it, especially a workbench is it, perfect, right? Here's how the invoice works. Here's, here's how the dog holes are work. Here's how they're spaced, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and going through, if it's a functional piece, perfect application. Uh, so, you know, that's something that would help to alleviate that and set expectations. And then, uh, you know, going back to, OK, they get it and they're not happy is uh, what was said. And it was it an expectation based upon what was presented by the seller or the expectation in the mind of the buyer. And that's a little bit different in the sense of, you know, if you said, hey, this is made out of plywood and they were expecting hardwood, uh, then that's on them. If it was clearly stated and they just didn't read it. So, you know, that that's the that's the fine line. Like if a customer signs up for something and it's clearly stated, and especially if there's a contract, uh, you know, if they bought a five foot dining table and it comes and it's five foot and they go, oh, this is not long enough. Well, you signed the contract for a five foot dining table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, uh, but we got to, you know, work through that. So I think that's the thing is, is making sure to understand uh where the discrepancy came from, was it because of representation on the buyer side or because of false expectations or false understanding from the customer side? And that that's that's really what to what you have to boil down, you know, and, and I'm sure you've dealt with this a ton, John, and in, in your custom furniture. Yeah, you have to keep the that communication channel as simple as possible. Um in that, you know, you have to make sure that you're not using a ton of jargon and you're not using a ton of industry terminology that may not be understood easily by the standard consumer. Um, you know, it's ironic that a, uh, with a workbench, you would assume the person purchasing it is probably a woodworker, but you can't assume that in your, um, your copy for your, your products. Um, and, you know, you have to make sure that things are as blatant and blunt as they can possibly be so that situations where someone might be looking for solid wood versus plywood, you know, they might not know what plywood is. 
Um, and, and in that, you know, you should be able to simply explain in your product descriptions or in your communications on, you know, the benefits and uh, the differences in, in things like that. I've run into that a ton because a lot of the a lot of the products on the market that are essentially my competition are laminated veneer style products. You know, if you right, go like to a Kia style press board. Yeah. So if you go like um buddy of mine, he, uh, you know, just set up his whole office. He went with a great local office, um, uh, I guess, furnishing company that I've worked with in the past. Um, and they, he, when he told me the types of, um, you know, wood finishes that were on the pieces there, I had to let him know <laughs> like, Hey dude, that's not actually hardwood. You can see because the grain pattern runs the whole way around the outside. There's no end grain. He's like, on no anything. dude, it's, it's solid tiger. And I'm like, like <laughs> I, it's yeah. But no, I mean, it's ebony. It, like yeah, I, I swear yeah, it is. It, and it was only $500. <laughs> and in that he wanted the piece that I was, he wanted me to commission a custom standing desk and, and it was something, um, you know, simple build. And it was uh, that he wasn't told, you know, the finishes were white oak. Well, I had to mitigate that by telling him, you know, color variations in veneering compared to solid woods are going to be a lot different. You're going to get, you know, different um, densities in the grain. You're also going to get different colorations and transitions between the sapwood and the heartwood and et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And by the end of that conversation, he felt and it took five minutes. He was a little more educated so that when I showed up at the desk, literally yesterday he was pumped about it he knew the parts of it that he liked he's like oh man this solid wood looks so much different it's so cool and it's and it complements the rest of the things going into the home well so getting that out of the way initially i don't walk into that delivery or transaction um and after the fact have to explain why things are different and i've learned that in experience um throughout making you know things for the past four or five years is that if you can temper that reaction before it's delivered, you're going to be in a much more favorable, you know, light, I guess, when you get there. Um, so, you know, make sure that yeah. your conversation, but you, you have to keep things to, um, to, to simple terminology. Don't go and dropping a ton of jargon on your website. I run into that all the time when I'm buying things. I'm like, what does this word mean? Yeah. Or, you know, like where are these terms coming from? And some, in my opinion, and this is solely my opinion, um, you know, brands that tend to use a ton of lingo and ton of, ton of terms that aren't, you know, just common knowledge seem to be hiding something. Um, you know, you feel like at the time you're writing that copy that it's justifying you as an expert, but what it's actually doing is creating a cloudy picture for somebody who's not an expert. Um, so I would say in situations like this, especially shipping international where language is definitely going to be a barrier, make sure you're keeping things as simple as possible because if they hit translate on your website, you want that to say solid wood and not, you know, some hodgepodge of, of English words that might mean something different in Russian or whatever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, you bring up a great point too, about if you are making custom versus spec, uh, especially for hardwood. And, and I've seen this done in, in a lot of different places. And if you are, if you expect, you know, even, even on cutting boards, even as you might think, Oh, that's so simple. But uh, if you've just got a spec cutting board, that's like a, a walnut cutting board that you're going to want to say in there, like, you know, will you know this is this is a representative example wood ha wood you know the beauty of wood is that it has natural variations and you know like you said they will have differences between the sapwood and the heartwood and 
And, um, you know, it's going to look like this, but this is not the picture. And the same thing, you know, as people, if they're working with, even if you're working with plywood, right? I mean, plywood, the veneers on there are going to be different. And, yeah. you're, and you're going to have some that that could be like, that could be a really something that you want to discuss with the client. You know, they want cathedral grain or, or straight grain, like, right? Or what, are they, what are they thinking about when they're thinking about what plywood and solid wood look like? So all great conversations. And I think as you, the more that you're on the same page and you just really set expectations, the less it is. And then the final thing that I know we talked about, James, and what I said was, so let's just say if it was the client that misread the website or that just had the false expectations and he represented everything as he should have, um, then what? And, you know, John talked about eating four or five grand. Well, if you're on the web and you're representing something, uh, I say, you know, what's your return policy? And that's something that you need to address. What does that look like? Who pays for shipping? Uh, do, who do, do they get a full refund? Do they get a partial refund? Do they get a store credit for the refund? Are you going to replace that? You know, what does that look like? Those are all things that you need to think about in advance. And if you're selling online, it needs to be in your terms and conditions. And it needs to be clearly stated or linked to on that product page. If you're making custom, it needs to be in the contract. So like those are because you need to be prepared. Like things are going to go south uh, and the more prepared you are when that happens, uh, the better it's going to be. Because then, then it's very matter of fact with the customer. You can kind of cut the cut the emotions out to a certain extent. At least cut your emotions out and say, you know, ma'am, I'm I'm sorry about that. Here's what happened. Whatever this falls under the return policy. Or oh yeah, like there was a crack in that leg. I'm going to replace that. Here's how it's going to work. I'll, yeah, I'm going to send somebody over. Or if you just want to send it back, you know. Like maybe you give them the option of a repair or a replacement or just a return. Uh, so all those things, I think those are all things that as a seller of goods, you, if you're not thinking about, you need to, because it's going to happen sooner or later. Yeah, definitely. Good point there. So our last question is from uh, our buddy, Tim Woodward. And Tim asked about uh, social media. He says, Gary V, who is a one of our favorites, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Gary V talks about running ads on Facebook and Instagram because the CPM, uh, which is cost per mill, which is the same as cost per thousand, uh, is so low right now. Woodworking community, the woodworking community is against this from what I can see. Not buying followers, likes, or views, but simply talking about running ads to promote your brand and be seen by more people uh, that may want to follow you. I see a lot of DIY bloggers doing it, but not a lot of woodworkers. Any thoughts or opinions around that? So just to clarify what Tim's talking about here, uh, Tim is talking about getting an ad on either Facebook or Instagram and targeting an audience to see your content, to get in front of new eyes uh, and not necessarily even. So Tim's kind of saying just more of a brand awareness campaign versus trying to sell something. Um, so you know, kind of hit this in a couple different ways. So one, Gary V is like hard core on Facebook ads. I mean, he like every other piece of content's about like why you should be doing Facebook ads. <laughs> and <laughs> right? It has been for years. It has. Yeah. So he's all over, all over Instagram. And we've talked about it in the past as well. But the, uh, the reason behind that is that Facebook has the most powerful uh, targeted marketing system on the planet, basically, because they can drill down. They know so much about you and all this, you know, all the stuff that's come in the news lately about all the stuff they're collecting and, and, you know, letting that get out. But the reason behind that is because every single thing that you do on Facebook, every group that you join, every picture that you like, every video you watch, 
they see it and they know it. And that's part of their terms and services that you've agreed to that you didn't read and you just hit okay, is that they collect all that stuff. And there's certain things you can opt out of, but basically they can go in. And so we've talked about this in the past about, you know, if I wanted to target in Pittsburgh, I want to target females between 25 and 35 who like wine, spin class and, you know, tacos like (laughs) I can do that and I can market directly to those people. Oh, and by the way, I can market to the people who have joined uh, a taco eating club group and that have viewed videos on eating tacos. And so when I come out with my new taco, I'm going to be hammering home when I've got the new taco shop down there in Pittsburgh next to the wine bar. Right. So like there's there's so many things you can do with that. And that's the power of Facebook. But uh, so the getting back to the question, you know, Tim says, well, what about us? What about woodworkers? How should we use that? Um, and we use that job, like, right. So for made for profit, and I think we talked about it and I don't know that we ever did a great job of coming back to it. Uh, we use some advertising for the, um, the pricing guide. So by the way, our pricing guide is still out there made for profit forward slash pricing guide where, where we have a pricing guide for people who make products to price their goods based upon the amount of labor, the amount of, uh, materials and the cost behind those and what kind of margin of markup they want to get. So, you know, we did that and, but we had mixed success, right, John? Yeah, and it's. It, I think the the biggest thing with Facebook ads um, for us was learning how to use it, right? So we talked about earlier in the show incorporating something to get your business capabilities wider. Um, when it comes to advertising, this is a whole other monster. Um, you know, there's a reason there's professionals that run Facebook ads. There's reasons there's entire agencies dedicated to running Facebook ads. This is a monster. Of an yes. op- one of an opportunity, but two of information. Um, so in that, you know, we, what what we found in our research, and I'll, I could take this opinion as my own, um, and, and and you can agree if you'd like to. But with that, um, you know, when you're doing any type of advertising on a digital platform, you want to have an immediate call to action that is super simple to attain, like a one click purchase, for instance. Um, the more you start trying to drive people down a rabbit hole, the more likely they are to fall out of your funnel or not, not full through and purchase. Um, so in that, you know, we, <clears throat> we discovered how difficult it is to target the specific audience that we want and, and, you know, finding hot leads versus cold leads. And there's just so much you can do. Um, and this was, I mean, days of work. And we had a, a buddy of mine that does this um, helping us. And I mean, it was still just a massive learning curve. And we'll come intense. We'll come back to it. And we, we know what we needed to tweak. And it's been about six months, but we'll, we're going to tweak it and get back at it so we can learn more and bring you guys more information and put the pricing guide in the hands of more people. But with that being said, I would 100 percent advocate against trying to run ads for likes and follows um, the you know, the amount of conversion you get to uh, with buyers on social platforms, specifically Instagram, is so low, at least right now, that I do not see any value in just trying to essentially buy with or get, you know, a, a wider capacity or more eyeballs on your stuff. Um, those people, you know, in, even for someone like like us, me and Brad with, with sponsors that want to see more eyeballs and they want those metrics on the content we make specifically, 
it wouldn't even be worth it for us to try to get more people to see our stuff just solely based on how expensive it actually is. CPM is extremely low on certain things and it's very high on other things. Um, and we learned right. that, you know, it could be like 50 cents for a click for a certain audience or it could right. be. And know, that's cheap. Yeah. And it could be 50 like cents a click is cheap. It could be a dollar. So, right. You got to think unless I'm able to immediately convert this click into a purchase that is profitable. Why would I want to spend money on likes or why would I want to spend money on right. follows? Um, and most of us in the social influencer game don't have thresholds based on um, numbers like that. Now, some people do, um, but those are more long, you know, long term type things. If you say your rate goes up, if you hit a certain amount of followers, that might be an instance where you might want to consider this. But I mean, I, 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 I mean, I can't ever think of a reason why you would want to. Um, so with that. I tried running ads when I had some products available for immediate purchase on Instagram and Facebook, um, specifically cutting boards and small batch goods around the holidays. And I cut zero conversion and I put a couple hundred bucks into it. And what I essentially I found was most of the people in my audience, most of the people in my target audience are <laughs> people who want to build what I'm building, not buy what I'm building. Um, and, right. and, you know, that's another difficult part of running ads is that it's easy for us to correlate with the people we know the best, which is typically our audience. And Tim specifically knows his audience very well. It's why his content's been performing so well. So for you to run ads at people that are similar, they're never going to buy your stuff because they just want to make what you're making. Um, so it's not really the best investment on advertising. If I was to dump money into anything, and this is me right now in this moment, I would probably invest it into SEO and I would probably invest it into backend um, things that could long term play out for what you want instead of a short term gain like, you know, pick up 100 followers or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think the key you, you hit on it, John, and I'll, I'll supplement uh, your answer. I do agree with your answer. But I think that the um, the piece that you said, you know, I, I think it's a shot in the dark. I, I do as well. If you're just like if you. If you put out a post and it's doing really well, let's just say, and you hit that boost post button. So that's like the worst thing ever, in my opinion, uh, because it's just like they're in my mind. If you don't know what you're doing, that's the worst thing ever, because they're they're kind of preying on people who don't know what they're doing. They're saying, you know, it'll say boost post reach 2000 more people in your area, you know, hit boost post. And then it'll ask you to pay how much ever 10, 20, 50 bucks. Uh, you hit that and what, so when you, the generic settings for boost posts are typically going to be like your area, whatever they define that as, and, and like an age group. So very, very broad. All right. So th with Facebook, the, the thing about Facebook and my example earlier about the taco eating, bicycling, wine drinking ladies who, you know, sound wonderful. Yeah. Um, need one of those. <laughs> as that's that's a very specific person uh versus saying somebody in nashville between 25 and 35 very broad like very broad so when you're boosting it's it's boosting to a very broad audience so unless you're going in you don't want to be doing that's not where you want to make facebook ads or instagram ads you want to be making facebook and instagram ads in the facebook ad manager 
and it is a crazy place. Oh, it's a, me, it's a mean, dark hole. <laughs> it, you get in there and you're just like, I mean, so you guys know how much I love analytics and data. And I, I was just like, oh, what is this? Like, there are so many options, so many things to look at, uh, so many ways to cut and slice and dice and pay and cap and look at CPM and you can pay for click and you can pay for impression. And it is something that needs to be understood. You just don't blindly go in there and press boost post. And and that is not I'm by the way, we're not we're not throwing daggers at Tim. That's not he's he's asking about, hey, you know, should I invest and what does this look like? Mm-hmm. So going back to that, so my first guidance would be don't ever boost a post. It's not gonna be worth it. Unless, so when you boost a post, you need to have, so if you're not doing a direct sell, and and so in all transparency on this, the pricing guide, I think John and I just were below breaking even. So, but we had a very direct, uh, the ad was a, Hey, here's our pricing guide. Click here to buy it. Yeah. We wanted to get married immediately is what they used. We did. (laughs) Yes. And so we had the call to action right there and that's what converts. Now a, what a digital marketing ad campaign looks like more realistically is, Hey, I'm Brad. Hey, I'm John. And we're made for profit. People who click on that are enticed with that a week later. Hey, I'm Brad. Hey, I'm John. Oh, by the way, we've got a podcast made for profit where we talk about business matters, you know, maybe and maybe that's a couple of days later, whatever, is that it's a drip and it's a sales funnel. And you're uh, like John said, you're not just going and asking them to marry you. They're like, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's the things we have. By the way, do you want to buy? So it is a repetitive campaign. That's why uh, when you go and search Peloton after John said he got a Peloton, I searched for Peloton. I got served Peloton ads for the next month yep. and it was all kinds of different ads trying to entice me. And, and I like, I will click on ads just to see what happens next. All a lot of times. day long. I do it all the yes. time. <laughs> I click on ads just cause I want to see what they're going to hit me. What, and that's called retargeting. So what happens is it's a whole funnel and an effective Facebook campaign. What happens is that you throw something out there, whether it's even into a niche audience, you throw it out there, the people who interact with it, get served the next ad in that series. Then they get served the next ad in that series. And all the way down to like abandoned cart. So you might get somebody into your website who puts items in your cart and then they don't buy it. Well, guess what? There's a specific ad campaign that gets served to those people. Hey, I see you forgot this, you know, what? and this might be email. That's more likely an email campaign. Uh, You know, hey, it looks like you forgot something in your cart. Uh, Or it could be, again, another Facebook ad. Uh, So like, if the end, if you have an end goal in mind, that's when it makes sense. You have to have a product behind it for it to monetarily, you know, in, in my experience and in my opinion, for it to make sense, you need to have a conversion on the end because you will, like John said, you will never pay for itself in just views or getting somebody into your audience and your time and money would be much better spent uh, in just the standard social media, you know, going in and just ground and pound and and getting better content yes uh so you know that kind of the long-winded answer like you, you it rarely makes sense to pay to get more people in your audience just because it's the conversion is not there it's so hard to get to those people who want to see you go into instead of trying to target people in those groups go into those groups and become a presence right so instead of clicking i want to be in people who are in the woman's taco eating group go into that group and say, yo, what's up? I, you know, same thing. Introduce yourself. And then after a couple of weeks, that's when you can start talking about, by the way, I got a new taco bar in town. Have you guys checked it out? Like that costs nothing. That costs your time. 
but uh, you know, you're going to make out a lot better that way because you're making real connections with those people as well. You're getting to know your audience and uh, you know, you're not doing some broad scheme on Facebook ads, trying to hone in where you really don't know, you know, who the people you're targeting are. And if you're not going to invest the whole kit and caboodle to get there, it's going to be a long road, man. Yeah. And, 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 you know, some of the, some of the stuff Gary V talks about when it comes to Facebook advertising is that direct product sale type marketing. He will say, if you're selling t-shirts in the Midwest and you specifically want to target truck driving dudes that, you know, are in blah, blah, blah state that like this team drivers rule. Yes. And And like make the shirt, you make the shirt (laughs) and target it specifically at them. And there's great businesses that are run around that type of marketing. Similarly, I think that's why it works for um, someone like a style blogger. You know, the, the difference in style blogging compared to woodworking is most of us woodworkers don't have the websites backing up our business model as style bloggers or DIY bloggers do. In that being, you know, plant sales and ad revenue are convertible, uh, profitable revenue streams on owned sites for those individuals. So with that, if a style blogger can get you on their site, they're making money because you're on their site. One, two, they probably have products to offer. They probably got a long list of things that you're looking into on that site that keep you there, that make them money. So not having that in place, definitely don't want to touch Facebook ads because you're just looking for them to stay on the same platform. You know, in, in Instagram does have the opportunity to sell products on it now, but unless you're doing that, it is a very difficult way to convert into sales because you want the you want advertising to be profitable. And one of the conundrums with marketing is that it's very hard to quantify money put into it because it's difficult to see it on the other end. Well, Facebook ads are the reason they're so popular is because that gets rid of the difficulty. It has conversion rates for you right there, and you can specifically right. see how much money you've made from running an ad. But that makes it much more difficult, and it also makes it makes the platform run towards those quantifiable metrics more than yeah. just a broad um, kind of you know gaining uh, new eyeballs on your stuff type of campaign. So, good question. Um, you know that uh, that could be an episode in itself and get really it, really deep. It is the last thing that like what you what you just said is exactly the point that I think most people miss is you need to understand the value of a customer. Yeah. And as an Instagram or if you're just on Instagram or if even if you just have a YouTube channel, that is very because you cannot you can sell on Instagram now. And in YouTube, uh interesting stuff. They just started talking about, you know, doing merchandise on YouTube now. So now maybe in the future that'll be something. But as of today, it's very hard to quantify that. It makes it very hard to quantify that. If you own a website, it is very easy to figure out the value of a customer, a value of a visitor, because you can go in through Google Analytics and I can go in last month and see how many people visit my site. And I know how much money I made off my site through ad revenue, through like through things that are driven by volume of traffic. So sponsorships are not driven by volume of traffic, even though you get paid because of certain rate, you know, certain rates because you get traffic. They're not driven by traffic. What's driven by traffic is ad revenue and anything that you sell on your website because you have some conversion rate, right? 5%, whatever it is. Uh, So if you took all the number of people visiting your site, divided that by the revenue you made on your site, that's the value of any single person coming to your website. Now you can segment that and everything. 
But that's what you need to know, because then, you know, then you can get into acquisition cost. So, you know, we're, we're starting to, before we go too deep that, you know, that's the mindset that you'd have to have. And that's where John was saying, where somebody like a style blogger or somebody like a, a you know, anybody who has a website that they make. Uh, so the other thing is like affiliate revenue uh, from, you know, having Amazon products or, uh, you know, selling things for any other host. There's tons and tons of different affiliate uh, programs out there. But if you add all that up and you know that every time somebody comes to my website, uh, I make an average of 65 cents and I can pay 50 cents to get somebody there, as long as that's a qualified person that kind of meets the people that are buying that stuff, then that's a good decision. But that's where you need to get to. Uh, and without all that research and stuff, you know, as you can see, just from the conversation of John and I, deep, man, deep, super deep. And I, I'm, I look forward to getting back into that because, yeah, we kind of pulled the plug on it because we didn't have the time. We didn't take the time to do it, but we do plan on getting back into that and really understanding it because it is so powerful and we are not taking advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. I mean, man, do I enjoy diving back into some of the some of the better questions that we get. And all of our questions are great, but I'm really like getting back into some because your thoughts are able to, you know, um, accumulate over time after answering it in the after show. So this is really good. I think we yeah. get a lot deeper and a lot lot better here. So this is absolutely this is fun. So it's so thank you guys for tuning in. If you do want to uh, be part of the after show. So th- what you just heard is basically a sample of what we do every week. We, we typically spend about uh, five to 10 minutes on each question and answer a couple questions each week. And we take those directly from our patrons uh, who submit those. And we have a specific patron Facebook group as well. Uh, but if you want to be a part of that, again, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. And you can check out uh, the show notes you don't know how to spell Patreon, hit the show notes or a link down there in uh, madeforprofit.com forward slash episode 52. And we will have links to the Patreon site uh, as well as the Facebook groups there. And if you want to join the conversation and possibly have your questions read on our quarterly question and answer, join us on Patreon and then head on over to uh, Facebook and search for Made for Profit Tribe and join the Facebook group. Jump in the conversation um, tons of good stuff going on over there. And we do pull mo- most of our questions from our private patron um, Facebook group. And it has been a great, great, great opportunity for our patrons to get to know each other, us to get to know them. It's just been a blast over there in that on that group. So you're going to be searching for Made for Profit Tribe on Facebook. And if you join us on Patreon, make sure you're signing up for the private group, too. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's in there. But it's what is the one? I don't know. MFP patron group tribe. I don't know. If you're a patron and you don't know where the Facebook group is, just ask us and we'll tell you where it's at. <laughs> All right, guys. So thank you so much. Right now, we are going to head over into the after show. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about IGTV. And that is a hot, hot topic. Everybody's trying to figure it out. What are they going to do? How are they going to use it? Vertical video. Uh, so yeah, patrons, buckle up. We're about to lay some knowledge on you of what we don't know anything about. <laughs> See you guys. Let's let's drop some bombs. (laughs) 